One of the things we know is that literally 70% of local seats go uncontested by Democrats. So not only are we not winning lots of races, we're not even trying in a bunch of these places. And yet we have all these people we're training. Hello, this is the Great Battlefield Podcast. I'm Nathaniel G. Perlman. A great political battle is being fought right now between progressives and the forces of reaction on the other side. This show is about the political entrepreneurs and other progressive leaders who are finding new or improved ways to fight. My guest today, Denise Feriosi, is a principal at Civitas Public Affairs and co-founder of the Pipeline Initiative. Her story and her political entrepreneurship in founding and putting together the Pipeline Initiative, which is a new and I hope valuable piece of the progressive infrastructure, makes her exactly the kind of guest I look for for this show. Pipeline supports critical leadership development across the country, and there are a lot of lessons for others working in our ecosystem and how she went about making it happen. I hope you will listen. So first, my sponsor, then my interview with Denise Feriosi of the Pipeline Initiative. Check out the large, detailed, and high-quality political data graphic posters from Time Plots. Our visual history of the American presidency, for example, lets you see the Clinton, Bush, Obama, and Trump presidencies in full context. Time Plots Library includes visual histories of the United States House, the United States Senate, the Supreme Court, and the Democratic and Republican parties. Find them all at www.timeplots.com. Use the code BATTLEFIELD for a discount. Denise, would you mind introducing yourself and giving me a quick biography? Yeah, happy to. I'm Denise Feriosi. I am, um, by title, a principal at a a firm called Civitas Public Affairs um, and also a co-founder of the Pipeline Initiative, which is an effort to get more reflective candidates and staff running and winning at all levels of the ballot. And I come to this work having spent about 20 years mostly in electoral politics and coalition building, really working a lot to help elect more women to office at every level. I've gotten so that 20 years seems short, but I know (laughs) one can learn an awful lot and build quite a career during that time. Yeah. Um, Where'd you grow up? I grew up in New Jersey, right outside of Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. In a political environment? Actually, I grew up in a completely, very, very apolitical environment. My mom and dad uh, got divorced. My dad was a small business owner, a construction worker who owned uh, a company called Feriosi Construction that had been in the family since you know they came from Italy to New Jersey. My mom um, had like three jobs. So I would say we were a family that didn't really have much time for politics, which I think a lot of a lot of people feel that way today. Um, that's probably the norm usually. Yeah. 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 That's right. My grandmother on the, on my Italian side of my family had gone to college and was a teacher. And I think that was like one of the biggest inspirations for me growing up. I think that's what started my interest um, in politics. I had a grandmother who was, I think she was head of the local league of women voters in Brooklyn or something. And I don't know to what extent that 
influence came through the generations, but these things do run in families a bit. You went to William and Mary? I did. I, I've talked to a bunch of people who that was their college, like way disproportionately. Was that a good experience? It was. <laughs> I knew I wanted to get out of New Jersey and Virginia felt like some exotic faraway place, strangely, even though it's five hours from where I grew up. It was a really important experience. And I think that I didn't realize how lucky I was, but some of the people that I went to college with and was friends with were like Jen Saki, you know, who I don't know, people may have heard of at this point in time. She's made a name for herself. Yes. Yeah. And Stephanie Murphy, who's a member of Congress from Florida. And, you know, it just, it was a really, really special experience and a place where I learned, you know, I think obviously both the like academic skills, but also I just like learned a ton about, you know, how to meet people who I have nothing in common with and, you know, make connections. It was a really eye-opening experience for me. Do you run across Nico Mealy or is he I a th- different? Yeah, I never did. I think he might be a little older, but Nico, if you're not, I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> well, he's been around even if he's, I think, considerably younger than me. Was it after college that you started uh, doing campaign work? Yeah, I actually. Um, I, so I graduated, um, in 2001. And I went home to New Jersey to save some money because I knew I wanted to move to Washington, D.C. and be in politics, although I had no idea what that meant. Um, And so I saved all my money and was planning on moving September 15th, 2001. And then the whole world changed after 9-11. That was obviously a very scary time. I ended up and, and it was hard to find a job. No one was hiring. It was just, you know, the world was obviously in chaos. I ended up going to work for a law and lobbying firm that did a lot of FTC and FDA regulatory work. It was owned by two women. I thought, well, politics or law school, I'm not sure. But after that experience, I realized I did not want to go to law school. I happened upon, um, actually, Jen Saki and I happened upon this program called 21st Century Democrats. Oh, I, I remember that. Who was the leader of that? What, Kelly? Was it Kelly, Kelly. Young? Yes, yeah. Kelly Young. Yep. I remember talking to her software-wise back in the day. That's a good long time ago. Yep. Yeah. So we decided to apply. I, we had no idea what it meant. We got in. We went, you know, and got trained at Georgetown University for a week on how to work on campaigns. And then I got sent to South Dakota of all places to work for Tim Johnson's first re-election to a Senate seat in 2002. And it was the most formative experience, uh, I think, of my whole career. You know, I came from a place like New Jersey. I I had no idea what to expect. I literally drove in my, in my Plymouth Neon. Um, it's amazing that it actually made it from New Jersey to, um, to South Dakota, but I got to Sioux Falls and I went in the campaign office and I sat down and our field director was none other than Jen O'Malley. Literally, I don't know how I like got so lucky to meet all these amazing people. So yeah, our field director was Jen O'Malley. Our comms director was Dan Pfeiffer. Um, our research director was Christina Reynolds. All names in the business. Yep. Yes. Like excellent, amazing people all in one. I mean, and, and the list goes on, you know, it was amazing. But I remember sitting in that office and I, you know, I got to Sioux Falls and I was like, okay, 
this is going to be okay. It's like a city ish, you know, they have a mall. I'll be okay. And, um, and then they told me, Jen O'Malley told me, you're going to drive two hours North. Um, if you hit North Dakota, you've gone too far. Um, and so I spent actually six months working and my turf was actually on a, a native American reservation. I mean, it's just the most amazing experience of my life. Like learning that, all politics is local. I mean, it literally one by one person, you know, like convincing people that they should vote for Tim Johnson and that they should turn out and vote. We won that race by 528 votes statewide. And so I was hooked. I was hooked. I thought, you know, as a young person, like doing a job that actually makes a difference, I talked to way more than 528 people. (laughs) So I was, I was hooked. Yeah. And, and, you know, South Dakota had such amazing democratic politicians back in the Dashiell Johnson era and holding on to that state sometimes by a hair and earning it. It's got to have been formative. Yeah. That's a place where people really, they knew their senators. They knew them personally. They've met them multiple times and those relationships and who they were as people, like as opposed to like where we are now, which is what did you hear on TV or on what digital ad did you get that said they were a horrible human? It just it was a different time. And it was and it and and that really mattered in a small state. Did you get a chance to get to know the senator at all or was that too far away for? for oh, you? no. I mean, I, I did. I got to know him, his wife, Barb, his daughter, his son. In some ways, I feel like that campaign was like not a good entry because I thought, oh, like this is how, A, this is how all campaigns are run with all those amazing people I just listed off, right? This is what a campaign is. And and these are the kinds of like good humans who work for office. <laughs> like it was like almost a bad thing because it was such an excellent experience. And really, I think, you know, not necessarily the norm of how things work. Is there some notification thing on your end? I've heard a couple... Oh, I'm sorry. Uh, Melodious tones. Yeah, let me just shut my outlook. After that win, you went to a runoff? I did. I did. They, um, they, (laughs) you know, the night after the election, they called, you know, like 10 of us out of the, and said, we're going down to Louisiana. There's a runoff. It's happening in, I guess it was December. It was just a month. Um, Do you want to go? And I said, yeah, sure. What do I have? I have nowhere else to go. And so, you know, we got in a caravan and again, the the Plymouth Neon drove down South um, to Louisiana. And that was like another, I mean, it's like, it, it was such a good experience and such a different experience. The culture, the candidate, you know, it was Senator Mary Landrieu. Um, and I learned a lot, you know, especially coming from a state that was in South Dakota. So, you know, it was basically all white and a small population relatively of Native Americans. And then going to a place like Louisiana that was just so diverse and um, and just so different culturally. And it was really about reminding folks to, to get out and vote again in December, right? So that was a great experience. And again... I just think really different, you know, that we saw different ways of getting out the vote. I mean, I kid you not, we would drive from Baton Rouge to to 
to New Orleans uh, on occasion while we were there, all the campaign staffers. And one night we saw our Republican opponent in the bar, just drinking and dancing. And um, they do things a little different in Louisiana politics than they do in South Dakota. And the Landrieu family is kind of, uh, you know, a legendary political family down there, right? They are. They are. They are. You know, unfortunately, I didn't it, only being there for a couple of weeks a month. I didn't get to know her as well as I did the the Johnson family. But yeah, a very well-known name. I got the chance to interview for this podcast, Mitch Landrew, who is her brother, right? He's just a really impressive politician, just found his way into the Biden administration. And just it's it's funny how like the circles when you're in politics, they just connect over and over, like with the people that you met uh, in South Dakota. I know that you had several stints at Emily's List. Did the next one begin after that? What was next? Yeah. So after that, um, I ended up going to work for Emily's List. They were launching a new program to recruit and train staffers to go work on campaigns for Emily's List candidates. And I had found the campaign in South Dakota through a similar program. And don't think I ever would have known that you could have worked on a campaign or had that kind of career had it not been um, for that training program. So I was really excited to do that. And I was, you know, like 22 years old and they gave me a laptop and a cell phone and a credit card and said, go recruit people to participate in this program. And it was kind of a dream job. I mean, I went all over the country to college campuses, to conferences where we could meet folks to tell them that you actually could have a career in politics, if you you know were willing to go uproot your life and move somewhere you've probably never been before, um, and so I helped to run that program for two years, bringing a new generation of folks into politics and then giving them the skills, and then you know kind of also being there to answer their calls when they realized what the job actually was <laughs> and, and how hard it could be, and so kind of you know being a, a touch point for them while they were on the road on the campaign. Um, and that was really, really exciting. And then I, I, <laughs> I kid you not, it was, I think I did that through 2004 and in 2005, we started to have a conversation about how to recruit people coming out of college on this new fancy tool called Facebook. And I was like, oh, well, I don't know how to do that. We didn't have Facebook when I was at college. So we we got to get someone new and young and hip into this. But I did. It was, a, it was a wonderful two years. While I was doing that, I also got to go out and help um, a bunch of women who Emily's List was supporting over the two years I was there. It was a dream job. I'm trying to think back to when I was coming out of college and getting going. Not everybody has the gumption to go travel to South Dakota and then to Louisiana and then to go around kind of on their own to college campuses and speak in their own right and travel, you know, and all of the things that it takes to organize yourself and not be too fearful and do that. Like, what was it in you that was uh, allowing you to just go for it in that way? You know, that's a great question. I just was always very, I guess, just really curious about the world and about, you know, I grew up, we didn't travel a lot. We, you know, we didn't have that much money to be able to do that kind of stuff. And one of the things that always inspired me was just like learning about new people and new places and figuring out a way to do that, that I could actually accomplish some of the goals I wanted and, and get to do that. Um, I guess I was a little fearless 
my mom and my dad never finished college. And, you know, my mom always said like, you're, you know, I'm going to work three jobs and you're going to college. I also think I felt like I needed to do big things to pay her back. But yeah, yeah, it was, it was never a question actually. And my sister, you know, my sister went to art school, but then she went and she taught in China for a couple of years. So it must've been something about the way my mom raised us. Yeah. I think it's wonderful to see when young people do that and can do that. We both worked on the Hillary Clinton for president first run 2006 through eight in my case. What was your path to that campaign? Yeah. Well, I think having worked at Emily's Us for two years, um, I really, you know, wanted to help women win elections. And it was interesting because as the, um, as the primary was heating up, I started to talk to a bunch of people who I had worked with in South Dakota who were going to work for then Senator Barack Obama, like mm-hmm. all. Kadashal had, had endorsed or was going to endorse him. Yes. Yes. And so all of the folks like that were, you know, Paul Tews was our person at the DSCC who was always in South Dakota and Steve Hildebrand, and they were all um, Obama people. And so I was talking very seriously about doing that. And then Hillary announced and I just had this like moment. I remember watching her announcement and saying like, I got to do this. Like, I can't not work for the woman. Like, <laughs> you know, I went through 2004 and there wasn't a, a woman in the primary in 2004 that ended up kind of being one of the top tier candidates. And I was at Emily's list. And, you know, I just remember being like, what the heck is going on? There's not a single woman who's uh, viable at this point in time. And so I called my friends from South Dakota and said like, best of luck. I'll see you in Iowa. And I ended up going and then they proceeded to handily kick our, our butts in Iowa. But I still, um, it was the right thing. I, I really believe in her still to this day. Yeah. That Iowa caucus, it was so outsized in that campaign at least in headquarters, there was so much anxiety about it. I think that when you are the insurgent candidacy, like Obama really was, it's more like Hillary was the incumbent and he was the insurgent. There is an advantage to that, to being the underdog. He was such a wonderful communicator and that campaign was well done, but it was a real, it was a real fight. Yeah. I think there is something, I think now that I think back about it, I mean, it was like, just from a, now that you can see clearly, right, in history, it's like, it was his time. And the Iraq vote loomed, lo- like it loomed over everything on the left. And it gave him a credibility in that, that she had lost. And that was, I think that was the difference. You know? Yeah. Well, I remember, I mean, I was the field director and there would be protesters that would come in and shut down our offices that were protesting her, her vote. And like, it would literally disrupt our entire days. And they were really effective at that. And you know, the other thing is they campaigned like the underdog. He went and met everyone. And just to that point about what it was like in South Dakota to have that one-on-one, like that is what Iowa voters, caucus goers expect. And that's what he did. I've been interviewing a series of people who are focused on the rural vote on our side, a a, a highly under- 
financed. We've kind of let that part of our campaign apparatus dissipate. We're getting our butts kicked in that. And you were doing rural. You were really doing rural in... Organizing, uh, yeah. Yeah, rural. I mean, both in Iowa and I assume in South Dakota, you would count that as highly rural. All of it. That is a kind of campaigning that has to be very personal, right? End of the day. Absolutely. Absolutely. And it is, it is, it is highly personal. It's not about finding the most negative thing you can say about your opponent, but like engaging in a real discussion, both about what issues matter. And, and honestly, this is the thing I think we get the, the, the most wrong, how it impacts people's, right? They're just their lives. These are not like, you know, we all care. I care deeply about like lofty issues of morality and values and like what it means for, you know, but like people are busy. They are stressed. This has been an, an incredibly disastrous two years. You might even say longer. We have to connect to like how this impacts or could possibly make better their day-to-day lives. And I think that's sometimes what we miss. And being able to engage in a conversation with them about what matters and how it affects their lives. And and also doing it, you know, civilly and, and the impact that people's neighbors and have on the way they think. Like I just don't think we've ever we do that right. But we sh- we sure did in South Dakota. You know, it was just one by one. When we run good campaigns, we do. And you know, when Hillary ran for Senate, she was all over the state of New York. They they understand that, you know. Uh, I talked to a, a African American congressional candidate who didn't make it in a district in North Carolina who has a rural vote project just in her district currently. She sees what it takes and she's trying to do that local, local organizing. I just really honor the people that go after that. That's right. And and honestly, it's not easy. It is not easy. It's very time consuming. It's, you really requires dedication. It requires organizing a team and, and having a lot of people who care and grow it's, it's not a short-term thing. Yep, that's right. Yeah. That's right. What was Common Sense Virginia? Oh, <laughs> that was a project that I worked on for the Democratic Governors Association. Um, in 2009, I guess it was. Is that right? 2009, goodness. There was a crowded Democratic primary for governor. And Bob McDonnell was the only candidate um, on the Republican side. And so we set that project up to make sure that, um, you know, that, that Bob McDonnell would not go kind of opponentless for, you know, I think the primary was in June, right? And then you kind of have a quick run to the general election in November. So the idea was to make sure that folks were, you know, that we weren't giving him a free pass while the Democrats duked it out on the primary. You spent a lot of time at Emily's List of late um, and and ascended to deputy executive director. I had the privilege of talking to Ellen Malcolm once, uh, interviewing her, not for the podcast, but for something else. And it's, that's kind of an amazing organization. What was it like for you? What was your perspective on that as a job and and an organization? I think there's no better place for, especially for a young woman to work and to be a part of something like that. I was lucky to work there under Ellen Malcolm, you know, the first time I worked there. And then I went back in 2010 
um, and worked there for Ellen for a while. And then Stephanie came in, Stephanie Shriak came in. This is like my example of like <laughs> the, the good fortune I've had to be in places with people doing amazing work at the top of their game. Working at Emily's List was just a dream, I think, especially for a young woman in politics. It is so clearly focused on its mission and everything you do every day is working towards that mission. And you kind of take it for granted that like, oh, every organization knows what they're doing and why they're doing it. Now that I'm a consultant, I see that is clearly not true. And just like a campaign, the focus of you're getting up every day and your job is to find more voters to get this person elected or reelected, that's what it was like at, at Emily's List. Our job is to grow the number of women in elected office. And there's a lot of noise out there and there's a lot of other things we could be doing. But every day, we're going to take advantage of opportunities to get women elected because we think that the world will be a better place and our policy will be better if we have more women at the table. And I just was able to learn so much. And also being there at a time where there was a real generational shift, right? Ellen Malcolm had stepped down and Stephanie came in and there was a real change, right? Ellen started the organization with 10 of her friends in the basement. And the idea was like, let's get, you know, a really good number of high net worth individuals to come in and support this cause. And they're going to support the organization itself. And then they're going to support at least two women candidates directly. And Stephanie really flipped that on its head because we were in a different time. And she said, we need more people. We need a grassroots base. That's where the world is going. And so just being able to do this job, to do it with people who are brilliant, and also to kind of see that organizational shift and change, it was amazing. When I was working in political software, I sometimes went into organizations that either were using what, what I'd built or um, or want, or I wanted them to. And the two organizations that always stood out to me were NARAL and Emily's List because I would walk the halls there and the staff was so predominantly female. And in so many other places, it wasn't. Was it still when you were there? And, and what did it mean to be managed and surrounded by people of the same gender in a way that a lot of our institutions really aren't in politics. You know, it, it definitely was. I, there are, I think there are probably more men there today than there were when I was there. And I think that's because it's become such a institution. It is a place everyone wants to work regardless um, of your, of your gender. Um, yes. We used to joke that, um, each of the men who worked there had their own bathroom stall with their name on it because there were so few of them that they could each have their own bathroom stall. And the ladies' room was where you actually got work done. It was an amazing place to work. And for me, it was a dream because I was able to see, you know, when I started there, I was pretty young. Um, when I left, I was no longer young because I was there for so long. Um, but for me to have role models of what it looks like to be in charge as a woman and to be able to, and we, we did this with our women candidates all the time, right? It's, it's this dance of how can you be powerful and competent, but also compassionate and connect with people. And I had had some bosses who didn't do that so well before 
when I got to Emily's list, there was this ethos that you work really hard and you don't mess around and you're at the top of your game. But also we would leave meetings and people would go like, I would literally be in strategy meetings where we were deciding, okay, who are we going to recruit? How are we going to win this U.S. Senate race? Very serious. We'd walk outside and someone would be like, I love those shoes. Where did you get them? And so, (laughs) you know, I felt like it was this really, like you didn't have to compromise or be one of the other. You could be a completely badass strategist at the top of your game and also really enjoy and like be able to kind of talk about things that were not badass political strategies. Um, And it was just fun. It was just really fun. And I felt really excited to get up and go to work every day, which I mean, that's not the case for most of America, I would imagine. No, it's it's a it's great fortune when you find yourself in a place like that. Yeah. When you mentioned Civitas Public Affairs, you said something I thought a little curious. You said something like, by title, I'm a principal. Why did you go to that? What is that? And yeah. what is the role there exactly? I'm a consultant at a public affairs firm, and I I laugh because I never thought I would be a consultant. I think it's like a funny thing. It's like, what is what exactly is that? It's like the Chandler Bing phenomenon. Like, what do you do? And also, I think in in politics, like consultants kind of get a bad rap, right? Like they're in it for not the right reasons or to make a, a bunch of money. And um, so I still have this funny identity about being a consultant. I suspect that came out in that phrase, yes. I, by title, I am a principal at Civitas Public. But I don't admit it. <laughs> I know, I know. No, it's... Um, what kind of clients, what kind of work is that? Yeah. I mean, we are what we call a values-based firm. We work for a bunch of different progressive causes and movements and um, some progressive philanthropy as well. And the way that I ended up there actually was the founders of the firm, Bill Smith and Patrick Guerrero, and a number of the other um, kind of uh, principals and partners in the firm were really um, the architects of the marriage equality movement. So um, working behind the scenes and out front to make sure that marriage equality essentially was the law of the land. And I met them when they first started the firm. I was at Emily's List, and we were about to um, undertake what was a momentous campaign to elect the first openly gay member of the U.S. Senate. In Tammy Baldwin, there was this feeling in Washington that uh, maybe she couldn't win because she was a lesbian, and it was Wisconsin after all. And so we ended up working with Bill and Patrick at Civitas, um, both to help us kind of build out a coalition of um, LGBTQ donors along with the women's community to make sure that we harnessed enough resources to her to help her win, but also to help advise on like how do you run a campaign for the first openly gay senator? Like, what do we need to know? What are voters going to think? And so we did this, we went, did these focus groups. I was just actually talking about this last night with Bill. We went out to like Green Bay, Wisconsin, and we're sitting down, you know, we're behind the wall. We're like, what are these voters going to say? <laughs> and it was the most amazing thing. They basically said, yeah, I don't really want to talk about that very much. But also, maybe if she's honest about that, she'll be honest about other things. And most politicians aren't. So we had this whole notion of this issue of her sexuality is going to be some big issue in the campaign. Turned out it wasn't. And that was like a really exciting thing. So I worked with um, Civitas on that campaign and just stayed in touch over the years. And after 2016, 
after I had essentially installed myself at Emily's, I went from Hillary's first campaign basically to Emily's list. Then I left the last three months to go out to Virginia to help in the final moments of the campaign in 2016. I was just done. I was like a decade and we cannot elect a woman to the highest office in this country. Like I got to take a break. I got to try something else because I'm, I'm tired and, and broken. And so I found my way back to Civitas and I thought, well, maybe I'll move, you know, I'll work in the issue space or in philanthropy and do things that are not this work of trying to elect <laughs> a woman. It has been really, really fun. But guess what? I have found myself back to doing exactly what I did. And so now I spend most of my time at Civitas on a project um, that's working to build the pipeline of uh, candidates at every level that looks more like um, our communities. Yeah. And that's the this pipeline initiative, right? Yep. That's yep. right. And that, I can't remember who it was, but at least one or two other guests mentioned it to me. And I, I thought, I don't know about that. I ought to find out. Tell me about it. What's the founding story there? Yeah. So yeah, I mean, in 2017, um, in my new, I'm in my new job, I'm a consultant, whatever that means. Um, and I'm asked to go up to New York to talk to a bunch of, um, you know, big donors who they have a ton of uh, capacity, but they really haven't done a lot of political giving, but like, you know, like so many people, 2016 really woke them up and they said, we got to get in the game. This is crazy. And so our firm was kind of just giving them an education on the landscape. Like before you start giving away lots and lots of money, here's how things work. Here's the ways that you could give your money. Here are the kinds of organizations and the ecosystems within the Democratic Party and the progressive ecosystem. And so one of the things they were interested in was how do we get better um, candidates running at every level of the ballot? And frankly, better skilled, trained, more strategic, but also more diverse and reflective candidates running. And so I literally went up to New York and I put my PowerPoint deck on the screen and I showed them the like 50 logos of groups, right, within the party and the progressive system that do candidate recruitment and training. And of course, Emily's List is one of them. Um, but there are dozens. And even at that time in 2017, so many more brand new organizations cropping up in this yeah. moment. The run for some things of the world. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Run for something being probably the best example. But uh, they said these donors, you know, they're just new and they're trying to figure out where to put their money most strategically. They said, you know, looking at all those logos, well, how does that all work together? And who needs money? And I was like, all of them, and it doesn't work together. <laughs> um, and so what we did was really set out on a project to figure out how do we make sure that all of these groups doing all of this important work are kind of more coordinated and also better funded so that what it adds up to is we've got better, more diverse candidates running at every level of the ballot. And one of the things we know is that literally 70% of local seats go uncontested by Democrats. So not only are we not winning lots of races, we're not even trying in a bunch of these places. And yet we have all these people we're training. So the goal of the pipeline initiative was to figure out, all right, we have a pipeline. It's just locked up in 40 different groups, right, at the national level and then all over the country. How do we get those folks and how do we get them to run for the right office at the right time so we can, you know, contest more races and win more races? And so that's it. Just a small thing. Just trying to reorganize how we get people to run and win everywhere. <laughs> yeah. I'm thinking back to 
since since uh, since 2017, I've probably interviewed I don't know 10 people who ran groups in that space, maybe more. The emerges or in the training or Emily's List or people working on recruiting immigrants to run or military to run. It is quite a mess of many good things like it is in many of our areas of the progressive ecosystem. So tell me about how it went in trying to tackle this conundrum. Yeah. Yeah. Well, first, what we did is we just went out and talked to everyone. We did. We went out and talked to everyone and we said, what do you do? Where do you do it? How do you do it? What works? What doesn't? What do you need? What are we all missing? Would you be willing to work to, you know, with others if you could get more done? We did that. I, I'm not even kidding you. Me and my team, we interviewed over 80 people at the national level, organizations, parties, you know, folks who had run themselves. Um, then we went to seven states and did the same thing. 70 leaders, organizational leaders, candidates on the ground. And then we did a big survey after 2018. We got, you know, after we had talked to everyone, we got, I think it was like 13 different national organizations to give us their lists of people they had trained or endorsed. And we surveyed and did in-depth interviews with them because we thought, look, we all have these notions about what works and what doesn't what candidates need or what people need to hear to run and what trainings work. But let's hear from them. Like we have this wave of new candidates that look different from any other class. Let's hear from them. And so we did that and we pulled it all together. And I mean, we learned so much that really shaped what we decided to do, right? With all that information, we were basically a research project and now we are a thing that is more than a research project, but we learned a lot. I think first and foremost, the whole field is just underfunded. We, as, as a party and as a movement, we cannot think beyond the immediate and, frankly, at the top of the ticket. We are so motivated by presidential elections and U.S. Senate elections and the ones that are coming up right then. And so part of what the challenge was with this work is that it's long-term and it's local. And none of those things are sexy to donors. And so we figured we have to figure out some way to get more resources into this work. On the same side of that, donors were saying, but where do we even start? Everyone comes to me and says their training is the best and you should fund it and that'll be it. So we realized we needed some kind of way to tie all of the work together. You know, another thing we found was that there was an awful lot of candidate training available, but there were other pieces of the pipeline that that were missing, right? We had these huge gaps. So there were staffers. We needed to train staffers and place them on those races. Then we heard from folks after 2018 that there were a lot of people there when they were candidates, but then when they were first elected, they just turned into like accountability targets. And these folks were like, I don't even know what I'm doing. I need to learn how to do this whole governance thing. So there was a big gap in the governance side. And then I think the third thing was that by and large, all of these groups that were totally different from one another, right? Whether they focused on young candidates like Run for Something or pro-choice women like Emily's List and Emerge or New Americans or LGBTQ candidates or just candidates in Wisconsin at the state legislative level, they all agree. Or there's a group that texts uh, texts uh, recruits for local like county 
yes offices and things yes and test yes. every race yes, who exactly. i love who yeah. they and it works it's yes. crazy it totally they recruited works. a bunch of people and yeah. they've actually recruited quite a diverse set of candidates as well right they all agreed that like you know we needed that what good candidates looked like and the fact that we weren't doing what we needed right now. And that kind of everyone agreed that if we wanted to really come together and say, we're going to change this and we're going to make progress over time, we're all going to come to the table and give a little bit up, but we'll do it together. One thing that they agreed on is like, there was, and this was so crazy to me, there was actually no set of data. No sharing of data and not everyone was maintaining decent data. Probably. No, and yeah. also, literally, there's no list of every elected office in the country. Oh, right, right, right. So, like, you know, I, th- I thought about, because when I was first at Emily's list, it was when all of the, like, America Votes was coming together. You know, all these groups were coming together and using a shared voter file to say, like, well, I'm going to target these voters in suburban Philly and so are you. So let's coordinate that. You know, like instead we're all sending mail pieces to the same house or knocking on the same doors. So I realized what we needed was kind of that infrastructure on the data and technology side for candidate recruitment, but it had to start with a like a, a list. So that's what we decided to do. We we started what we now call and just launched this past September the pipeline platform. And essentially what it is, is a list of every elected office in the country overlaid with shape files, right? So you can say, you know, Emerge can say, here are the, you know, thousand people we've trained in our states over the last, let's put them in this database and see where they could actually run. It also has um, current office holders, right? So who's the term limits, shape files, and then we're overlaying voter file and modeling data so that we can actually get demographic information on current office holders. So the idea is we have this pipeline, right? All these people, right, who are either trained or leaders in kind of civic engagement world or advocacy world, but they're all locked up within individual organizations. Well, what if we had this data set and we could put all those people in and then see, right? We could get more people running and winning instead of having like contest every race says 70% of local races uncontested. Or, I mean, I think the other humongous problem that it creates is what we have now, which is a set of elected officials that are largely male, white, and old, right? And a community, you know, and obviously a, a country that is changing. And so we want to do two things. One, we want to get folks who look like their communities running and winning. And we also want to have more people writ large, right? Running in as many seats as possible. I I have a sense of of the ambitiousness of that project and it's not small i'm glad that you're i'm glad you're doing it um did you form a nonprofit or an entity to do this what's the organization that you created so we have three um so we have um the uh we have a a 501c3 a 501c4 and then we also have a taxable nonprofit corporation um the tax the it which is called the pipeline initiative is actually the corporation and that is the piece of of this whole kind of constellation of organizations that holds our data and technology and that's really important because we want to be able to provide this service right this data and technology to the groups right that are C3s and C4s and that's what we we're doing we're providing it to them cost free but because we have a corporation it means that um 
other legal entities can also purchase access to this data. So we've just started reaching out to the Democratic Party and the different committees and the state legislative caucuses because they don't have this data either. Yeah. I mean, it's it's another example for me of things that could theoretically have been built by the party and might be built by a party that was doing everything well, but you know, but the, somebody outside tackled because it hadn't been done. What do you think of that relationship? Essentially, it's an adjunct to the party. It's part of the party. The party is is everybody who works in alignment with it, in my mind. But what do you think of that, how you fit into this? So I'm a problem solver. I try not to waste too much time wishing and hoping that someone would do something. I think there's lots of reasons that they can't. I mean, first and foremost, you know, the DNC, they got a lot of work to do. And they are primarily held accountable for winning presidential races. And so if that's your job, right, just like it's this, this, unfortunately, this is no one's job. So it's ours. Well, I mean, it could be split into, you know, people running for Senate, people running for the House, people running for in each state for the legislature, people running in each county party. The way the institutions are organized, if you're going to go across the whole country, you need it somewhere else like you're doing it. Yeah. Yeah. And the other thing is that if you just step back and say, there's only so much money in the world, right, that's going to get spent on this kind of work, I actually think there's a way to leverage that money smartly. Like the job that so many of the folks in our C3 space, which our C3 is called the Pipeline Education Fund, and it's focused on developing leaders from underrepresented communities. Like there is so much work that is done in a nonpartisan way just to say to folks, like for example, new American leaders, right? Just to say like, have you ever thought about getting involved in your government or running for office? It's like this very early pipeline building of like educating people about the possibility, especially for folks who don't wake up thinking I'm going to be the next president, right? So I actually think it's much more efficient and smarter and it to to spend C3 dollars doing that early pipeline work. There's a part that is best spent using C4 dollars. You can only do so much, right, in a C3. You can do more in a C4. But if we could reorganize the whole ecosystem where we're spending the money most efficiently, right, and then the party takes these folks and elects them, right? Like, that's actually a much more efficient way to do business. And that's why we've set this up the way we have. It is not that easy to build a data slash software hub, as I bet you have discovered. How did you go about that? Did you contract that out? Did you bring in developers? What was, what happened? Well, let me just tell you, first of all, I am not a data or technology person. I tried so hard. I went around, I asked a bunch of people, hey, don't you think someone should do this? Maybe you should do this. Like, <laughs> like this is not my job, you know? Who should be doing this? Like, we need this. We clearly need this. And no, I had got no takers. And now I see why. My goodness, it is complicated and expensive and it takes long. And frankly, the, the political implications of how you build something and who owns it and how people get access. I mean, it is, it is enormous. And people's lists in politics, that is gold. It's very complicated to navigate all of those things. It takes a lot of skill and knowledge about who the players are, I'm certain. Yeah. Well, I had that, which is the yes. good news. I had that. The other good thing I had was I had buy-in from all of the groups we were working with. They all, I mean, I didn't come up with this idea on my own. They all said they needed it. None of them could afford to do it on their own. So we had that, which was great. And then 
we just went out. I actually put an RFP out because I was like, who can do this? At the outset of it, I didn't I didn't even know, like, you know, we 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 ultimately ended up hiring Civitech to to build the technology and provide the like, they do all of the customer service, but we needed different people for different things. So we have a technology partner and that's Civitech. We needed data partners, not just one, but multiple. So we worked with Ballot Ready on data and they provide almost all of the data, but we needed voter file. We need a voter file vendor. So we're going to work with Catalyst. Like we, and then we also needed, we needed to, to develop a system where this, um, the data would get better and better. So what we did was say, okay, partners, right? Our C3 and C4 partners, we're going to provide this to you cost-free. We're going to give you an in-kind contribution, but in return, you got to share some stuff back so that we know more and more about the people who are running and the people who are winning. And that took a really long time to figure out, like, what is the balance of like give and take, right? Of what people will do to kind of make the, uh, an asset better for the whole community. So that's where we are now. I know the people at Ballot Ready and Civitech and Catalyst, at least leaders. How did they do for you? How much headache were they, or what was the experience like? I mean, honestly, it's been great. I think that if they weren't committed to the idea of this, it never would have worked. This is not, and Jeremy from Civitech and Aviva from Ballot Ready will tell you this, and I'm sure Michael from Catalyst, like, this is not a moneymaker. This is not a good, this is not, I've told them up front, I'm not a good business person, right? Like, we're trying to change the world. And, you know, we all got to give a little, right? So they've been excellent. And it's been, you know, building something like this that is new and again, rooted in all of these questions about ownership. And it's been tough, but we've worked through all of it together because I think they're all really committed to the fact that this is like, this is this is ridiculous that it doesn't exist. It's ridiculous. And we've got to do something. So to what extent does it exist now? or And to what extent is it still coming along? Yeah. I mean, it exists. We have a a functioning platform. We're finalizing some of the most um, important kind of technological features that will allow our partners to do their work. And we have 35 groups onboarded and using it. How do you decide there would be people you wouldn't want to have access to it, I assume. How do you decide who gets it? What does it take to qualify? Yeah. So first and foremost, we use our mission statement to decide. So through the C3, you can get access if you are committed to developing leaders from underrepresented communities. So we classify that in six different categories. It's women, BIPOC, LGBTQ+, new Americans or immigrants, young people, and working class. So if you're doing that work, then on the C4 side, we can we provide access to groups who are working to develop diverse progressive candidates and leaders. Um, Again, same six groups. Um, And then the Pipeline Initiative Corporation will be partnering with folks who do that work and also the Democratic Party. What if an academic who studies the space wanted to take a look at it? Or I mean, are you going to allow people who might have research agendas? Yeah. I think one of the things that we are going to do is because this the, the, the technology in itself and the ability to use it to do work is one thing, and that's our primary goal. We've realized that the data set that we're building is just going to provide a huge amount of information that no one has. So we, I think if it, we have decided, you know, kind of research and analysis, if it furthers our mission of highlighting the problem, we're going to do it. Yeah, that's great. 
I'm guessing that that you start the funding with that group of donors that you were talking to in New York. But how did you fund this? It, it doesn't sound free to pull together these partners and the data and get it built and, and many other things I assume you're having to do. Yeah. So um, philanthropy. I mean, we have raised, um, and, and I should say, the technology and the data is just one piece of what we're doing. There are two other big functions that our C3 and C4 do. One is just kind of ongoing convening and collaboration amongst the community. So we have a national steering committee of groups like Run for Something, Emerge, New American Leaders, et cetera, Emily's List, and more. And you can see that we have a our C4 website is pipeline.fund. You can check out our whole list of partners. And then we have state groups in 15 states now that are doing the kind of year-round work of recruiting and training folks. Those are groups like Represent Georgia, Great Lakes Political Academy in Michigan, LEAD Pennsylvania, um, and again, 15 states of groups like that. Do you go out and recruit groups? I mean, it feels like you should have all 50 states. Like, do you say, darn it, I don't have any Arkansas? Yeah. No, you know, the the crazy thing is, is that they find us. Well, so, uh, yeah, but there are going to be ones that don't. But now it's circulating in the community that this yeah. is going. Yeah. Yeah. So p- we keep finding new groups. And then the, the other cool thing that's happening is that there are like the progressive infrastructure in a number of states, which is a lot of the times like led by either like the donor, you know, there's a collection of donors who work together in the state or there's like the America Votes C4 table. They've been coming to us and saying, we want to build something like this. We see that this is a missing piece. How do we do it? And now we can say, well, let me give you like the models. In Florida, they do it this way. In Pennsylvania, they do it this way. In Georgia, they do it this way. And let's talk about the politics of your state and what might m- make the most sense. Look, I'd love to be in a place where I'm proactively building chapters. We're not quite there yet, but I think that's that's the future. Right. Do you run into uh, difficulty with the environmental people with the pipeline name? <laughs> We've heard. No one's ever told me directly, but we have heard that they don't like it. <laughs> yeah, it's really funny. I was working with another. You know, we've expanded our our supporter base, our donor base, quite a lot since we started. Um, and I was working with another collaborative, and they they said we're going to have this be a huge part of our 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 portfolio, but we can't call it pipeline. <laughs> and I was like, that's fine. You call it whatever you want. As long as you're funding this kind of work, I don't care what it's called. It can't be that in North Dakota, maybe. No, <laughs> no, 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 no. We've, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's kind of set. Oh, and then the other thing that we do is we actually are directly funding. So in addition to the technology and then I was wondering just- about that. Yep ongoing collaboration and bringing groups together to share and work together. Um, we're uh, funding state pipeline building work um, of the leadership kind. Um, and so we've picked, we have four pilot states where we're providing direct support. Those are Michigan, Pennsylvania, Florida, and Texas to see what it looks like. If you really invest in the level that you're, that you, we should be, what can we actually do over the next five years? Are you, uh, confident that you can keep donor interest. It is a challenge in our space to get past the initial excitement of a new thing into the maintenance of something that becomes taken for granted. A hundred percent. I am worried about it. I am worried about it. 
And I think because we were so successful last year, I think in part because of the development, again, like you said, of something new and cool, and it's a utility that everyone can use in this database. I do. It keeps me up at night a little bit. I worry about donors losing interest because I think that we are good when things are new and bright and shiny objects. And the inherent nature of this work is that it is long-term. And so part of what we've been doing is trying to build a set of funders who understand long-term work. We've had a lot of success with some philanthropy in getting multi-year gifts, which my goodness, just changes the way you oh can do your God, work. Oh my God, you can plan and you can relax a little and count well, on something. Yeah. Yeah. And honestly, most of our funders have been women who are, you know, making these these big bets and saying like, we can't do things the way we've always done them before. Have you hired a, a staff? What's the organization look like in that sense? Yeah. None of us are actually full time on this project. Um, so it is housed um, a lot of it at Civitas with my colleagues, myself, um, Krithika Harish, who was one of the co-founders and was there in the beginning when we were trying to figure out what we were going to do. Um, she does a lot of our state work, a lot of our research work. Um, another woman named Alicia Diaz and Caleb Queen. And then we have, um, again, on the Pipeline Initiative Corporation, we have a data and tech advisor. And then all of the, the groups we talked about, Civitech, um, Ballot Ready, Catalyst, et cetera. But I think that, you know, part of this is, you know, we had this idea, honestly, this, this was an idea at the end of, of 2020. We said, look at all the stuff we've learned. We've heard from the field. We know what these groups need. Now let's see if we can do it. Let's see if we can raise the money to actually put this idea into action. And so that's what 2021 was about. And we raised $4 million, launched this brand new piece of technology. We started funding these states. We held convenings. Um, we put together this awesome steering committee at the national and state level. And so I think moving forward, um, you know, the future is about continuing this and making sure that people continue to invest and that these groups really make this data and technology and collaboration a part of their everyday work. Um, yeah. And I want to grow and, and have this, have this not be a consultant project, but a real thing that lasts into the future. Well, it's I, honestly, a really impressive, from what how you describe it, example of kind of political entrepreneurship and making something happen that fits into the existing community and moves it forward. And I kind of marvel at, at it uh, compared to sometimes ones that are less steeped in in what's there and 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 kind of run in run afoul of existing arrangements and and don't solve a new problem or solve it in a better way so that's that's really cool one of the things i was wondering about is you know there's been a conventional wisdom for a long time that the equivalent recruitment and training processes on the other side are much better funded and more organized and more formidable. How much did you look at the other side? How much do you know about the other side? And how much should we feel like we are doing compared to that? 
So this is interesting. We actually did quite a bit because it was one of those questions we always got in the outset. What does the other side do? I mean, you know this. We spend a lot of time catching up and then saying, oh, look, this is what they do. Let's do the same thing or better. And then they do something else, by the way. And then they go, yeah, then they move forward, right? (laughs) Here's the good news. And I swear, if we do this right, we actually will be ahead of them. We will be ahead of them. They They have no such tool, but the truth is they don't need it. I hate to say this, but they're not at all concerned about the demographics of the people that are running for office. They would be just fine. And frankly, they work on this, getting folks who are self-funders, rich old white guys um, who already have a network of people um, to run. And it's just not as hard when you have people who have grown up in a privileged environment and never thought that it was impossible for them to do anything. It's just easier. So our infrastructure and our plans cannot mimic that. It's a, just a completely different ball of wax, right? We have a complicated patchwork of all different kinds of groups who need different things. What it means to run as an LGBTQ candidate versus a new American. Lots of unique constituencies. Totally, totally. And it's grown up organically like that. And you you can't go in with a bulldozer and reshape it. No. And in the beginning, people told us that we should should be forcing mergers. That's what we should do. And I was like, I'm not doing any of that. You could encourage a merger if people were if it made sense, but you can't force them for sure. No. And honestly, I think we have the right groups. We just need them to work better together. And we need this to be funded and it needs to be connected to a shared strategy and shared data. So that's what we're building. The other side, they have two groups. It's really like, it's the um, Conservative Leadership Institute, you know, that's funded at like $30 million a year, no matter if it's an on-year, an off-year, they're winning, they're in power, they're not. And they have the the RSLC as well. And, you know, we have 100 groups and none of them are funded at that level. So this is where we are. We think this is the best solution is like, how do we make it work together better? Yeah. I want to see it sometime. You'll have to show it to me if that's possible. I will. I would love to. Yeah. What question did I fail to ask you that I should have? Um, maybe what do you hear is the hardest thing about running for office or what do, what do candidates actually need that they're not getting? Or I personally am not, I don't interview candidates uh, except when they have gone on and done something entrepreneurial in general. I have interviewed certainly people like Mitch Landrieu or Marno Malley or Howard Dean that have run, but I'm interested in people like you who are um, trying to make the system work or or thinking about the democracy and how we can save it in this hour of need, things like that. The question I, I guess that occurs to me now is if you were able to rationalize and help one area of the progressive ecosystem, what's next? What else could you tackle in a similar way? Maybe that's the the next step is what what else can be organized maybe has a central hub like you you're becoming a hub of of data and maybe best practices for the groups and a lot of other information and expertise and and hopefully will grow more so over time what other areas are ripe for that oh that's a great question that's a great question Oh my goodness gracious you know what I think we need to do and this is a little self-serving cuz I in my you know in my other life at Civitas, it's another project I work on. 
we have got to get better at, and it's, it's, it's a little connected to this, judicial races at the state and local level, right? I think it's like 34 out of 100 states elect judges. Uh-huh. And there's 100 states that I did not know, but um, I'm sorry. Did I say four out of a hundred? Thirty-four out of fifty. <laughs> we should split um, some of the Democratic states, but go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> North and South uh, California also elect judges. Um, yeah. So, speaking of the other side, right? They have the 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 people that get to the Supreme Court, right? They go through, you know, this the, the whole this, Federalist, the Federalist Society, yeah. It's a factory. They bring up these conservative lawyers. They get them in law school, et cetera. Um, on our side, we don't play like that because we believe that courts should not be biased. We think they should be fair, right? So we don't play that same game. Yeah, we, and, have, we have the American Constitution Society, but it's far different. And, and some other things as well. Yes, in funding, et cetera. Um, and I think the biggest problem is we don't, we don't play that game because we think it's not the right way to play. Right. Um, I'm working on a, on a project also around how do we actually start to build progressive state courts? And it's, it's mostly motivated by and funded by reproductive rights and gender equity funders, because we see what's happening. Um, and eventually, the decisions are going to be left to states, including state courts. So how do we build progressive pro-choice, pro-gender equity state courts um, that also, by the way, are the arbiters of everything from voting rights and access to redistricting, obviously to criminal justice. And so how do we start to build something that can really make sure we have champions? This may exist. I haven't thought it through, but like even in, in the world of voting rights, how many voting rights organizations are there and are they tracking like what's happening in every state where all the legislation is that may be happening i don't know but like in what area is there a use for some centralized data that is a backbone that they can all work off of yeah i mean i'm i'm certain this is it's not my area of expertise but yes i think voting rights there's a ton of amazing work going on but man, we're still getting clobbered, aren't we? We are getting clobbered in the states where they have the legislature. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, it it has been really great to talk to you. I'm I'm oh, I'm really encouraged by what you're up to. It's nice to see an area where we're making progress and and something makes sense to me. And you've done that, so I I'll hope we can continue to track that over time. Maybe come back and tell me how it is in two years or something like that. But uh, thank you so much. Is there anything else you want to say? No, just that I appreciate you uh, caring and actually understanding what I'm talking about and like asking really insightful questions. It's uh, it can be complicated, right? To explain this, but it's so important. And so I just appreciate you taking the time. Well, I hope you can uh, share this around. Maybe it'll be something you can use for whoever might listen to a podcast (laughs) to understand better what you're up to. I will. That was Denise Feriosi. Denise is at pipeline.fund. This is Nathaniel G. Perlman with the Great Battlefield Podcast. You can find us at greatbattlefield.com or by searching for Great Battlefield in places where podcasts are found.